you are now listening to the place for biblical end times truth, the Remnant Report. I am your host, the Remnant Warrior. Here, we are dedicated to equipping the Remnant for the tribulation that must shortly come to pass, as well as reaching the lost at any cost. to not love our lives even unto death. We serve a risen living Savior, so death is not the end, and we know that we will overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, because we love not Just out of curiosity, does anyone here not know who Alistair Crowley is? Never heard of Alistair Okay. Anyone else? <coughs> anyone know his work really well, so well that you wouldn't admit it in public? <laughs> Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley, the late Alistair Crowley, my very good friend. This is Edward Alexander Crowley, also known as Alistair Crowley. He styled himself the wickedest man in the world. The wickedest man in the world. The wickedest man in the world. The wickedest man in the world by the London newspapers. The man who called himself the Beast 666. The Golden Dawn's most notorious member was a self-confessed Satanist. Others have affectionately dubbed him the most notorious occult magician of the 20th century. Mr. Crowley has been uh, instrumental throughout music. Just the Crowleyism of uh, you know the times. It was a significant part of that middle point of the 70s. Crowley was one of the pantheon of cult figures portrayed on the cover of the Beatles record, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I don't can't think of any other cultist who's been more influential on rock musicians than Aleister Crowley. No one close. And he personally bragged of having slaughtered 150 male children in one year. This is why he was called the wickedest man in the world. And through putting himself in deep hypnotic trances and the use of drugs on himself, he wanted to become the most powerful being in the world. He was responsible for founding the religion and philosophy of sexual magic, Thelema, in which role he identified himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus in the early 20th century. He is a Freemason. They, it has its roots in Freemasonry and secret societies, uh, which is essentially Luciferian doctrine. Uh, that is the sigil of Baphomet, the symbol of Baphomet. I have found that at the very heart core of all these secret societies lurks the Kabbalah. A lot of the Kabbalah, um, a lot of ancient Egyptian deity as well. In the Great Pyramid, Crowley conducted an occult ritual intending to access supernatural powers. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, and love is the law, love under will. Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. No, love is the law. Love is the only law. I'm me. I'm doing what I want to do. I am who I am, and it's tattooed on my chest. Well, I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law.
his family were members of the Plymouth Brethren sect. Now, the Plymouth Brethren were radical Protestants. You might even say pathologically anti-pleasure. They believed in the literal truth of the Bible. This included in particular the book of Revelations, which is a constant echo throughout Crowley's imagination, his theology, if you want to call it that. exceptionally detestable crew. I wanted sin, a supreme spiritual sin, but hadn't the slightest idea how to go about it. He heard that there were secret societies whose members practiced dark and forbidden rituals. Crowley was intrigued and was desperate to access this hidden world. After two years of searching, he finally found what he was looking for. And in his study of religion and philosophy, he encountered this idea of an invisible college a place where spiritual topics, where mysticism and magic are taught to people who can locate the entrance to this mystical college. And he very much wanted to be part of that. And eventually he did find someone who was able to provide him an introduction to a group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He discovers the Golden Dawn. It's from here on, really, that he feels he's really onto something. This is, this is something brand new, it's fresh. Bram Stoker is involved, um, Yates is involved, the sort of literary sort of society lot. I mean, he wants to be part of that as well.
But what had happened is that uh, Crowley worked through the different levels really quickly. He was a quick study, he was bright. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. Like nobody else has gone through them before, he seems to take to this literally like a fish to water. This seems to be his vocation. This is after his initiation into the Golden Dawn, which happened at Mark Mason's Hall, I believe, November 18th, 1898. And he took uh, the magical name of Frater Perdurabu, I will endure to the end. And he did. And one of the interesting things about Crowley's associated with the Golden Dawn was that when he came into it, basically that was the beginning of the end of it. For Crowley, who was now referring to himself as the Beast 666, the Golden Dawn turned out to be a bitter disappointment. He thought that they were playing at magic and tried to take the society over. He clashed with the poet W.B. Yeats, who was a prominent member, calling him a lank, disheveled demonologist. Rumors of the questionable occult activities in Chancery Lane were filtering back to the other eminent members of the Golden Dawn, as well as whisperings of Crowley's many promiscuous sexual relationships with both men and women. William Yates, for one, highly disapproved of the man and let it be known to Mathers. In May 1899, Crowley went to Paris to meet the leader of the Golden Dawn for the first time. Uh, and the reason why Mathers was the guy was that he was in touch with these entities that were known as the secret chiefs. Now, if you know Madame Blavatsky, she talks about the Mahatmas. These are these kind of um, elevated, highly evolved individuals um, who have mastered, you know, occult powers and masters the powers of mind and all that kind of thing. And they can, they can communicate telepathically, they can materialize and do, you know, they kind of, you know, they, they, they can use the force, put it basically, to be able to do that. Mathers claimed to be directly in touch with them. As well as being a master Freemason, Mathers had spent many years translating one of the oldest and most famous books on magic, The Key of Solomon. He had also written a book, The Kabbalah Revealed, which he had translated from the Jewish Zohar. Many years ago, I discovered another Hebrew manuscript, the book of the sacred magic of Abramelin the mage. It was a kind of teach-yourself guide on how to impose your will on nature, using contemplation, prayer and abstinence not that far away from yoga. There are two schools of magic. On the one hand, you have white magic, which invokes the forces of good. On the other hand, you have black magic, which invoke the forces of evil. Abramelin teaches that the good forces are superior in power to the evil or satanic forces, and that by prayer and leading a pure life, the practicing magician can call upon his guardian angel to help him use and harness the forces of the power of darkness. There are no real rituals, just lists of angels and demons which can be evoked. Now, Abramelin magic was um, something that had been come into the Western literature in the 15th century. It was transmitted by Abram the Jew to his son Lamech to invoke the good forces, the angelic forces, in order to overcome the dark forces. Crowley is so dedicated to performing the Abramelin ritual that he actually goes to the length of seeking out and finding the perfect place and buying a house to do the actual ritual in. Nothing else, just actually to do this ritual. And it's uh, in Loch Ness, Beleskin House. He had to have an isolated house that was indicated. And it had to have a terrace, uh, kind of a flat area outside, and it had to be without nosy neighbors. he heard about Boleskin, but he must have been attracted to the name because it's actually derived from Baal, the bloody god of the Babylonians. He 
spent almost a year looking for this type of house. It had to be a house which opened onto the north, doors opening onto the north, uh, with a terrace where he could, which he could cover with fine river sand, and with a, a part of the house which where the spirits, which he called up, would congregate. So Crowley dropped the ceremony, which was, you're not supposed to do this. I mean, once you begin something, you should follow through. If you do that kind of thing, you get possessed, in a certain sense. Things get inside you and use you for their purposes. Celia comes to Earthquake's hour. The bed vibrates like kettle drums. It is a grand display of power when Celia comes. When Celia farts, my hasty nose sniffs up the fragrance of her parts. Shamed are the violets and the rose when Celia farts. If you dig into the poetry and you, you know, you read between the lines of his poetry and, you know, you dig into his story, a lot of the things will, you know, make more sense to you. You know what I'm saying? Greasy the turds, dribble your dung on the tip of my tongue. Churn on me, Leia, twist with your thighs, smear diarrhea into my eyes. Vomit it, spew it, and lick it once more, and can make lust drunk on disgust. performing and experimenting with magic ceremonies, calling upon demons and consecrating various talismans. Our experimentation into the occult went far beyond Crowley's formal Golden Dawn grades, incorporating the use of mind-altering drugs, opium, cocaine and hashish. By the great god Harpocrates, by your deep purple darkness, by my white and brilliant light do I conjure thee. Collect yourself about me. Clothe this astral form with a shroud of darkness. Back in England, Crowley found his first disciple, Victor Neuberg, a young Cambridge poet. In the case of Neuberg, there was definitely a peculiar kind of homosexual relation, and I'm not just now talking about the ordinary physical thing. Neuberg was in love with him. That's what, that's what I mean. Uh, he got mixed up with Crowley. Crowley saw there a far weaker character, um, plunged on Neuberg, and of course got, dragged him into this whole business of black magic. set off to Algeria 
to perform Enochian magic, a dark and dangerous set of occult rituals. They walked deep into the Sahara for two days until they reached the point of exhaustion. Disorientated by the effects of the desert and copious quantities of hashish and mescaline, Crowley and Neuberg embarked on the climax of the ritual, summoning Koronzon, the dweller of the abyss, seen within the occult world as the devil himself. Crowley has like a mystic revelation that sees a blinding white light. He seems to commune with the secret chiefs and he suddenly realises that sex can be a sacrament, can be in praise of the gods. It's like a short cut, it's a short circuit to go straight in to achieve whatever you want to achieve magically. The effect of the rituals left Neuberg a shattered man. He never fully recovered from the experience. But for Crowley, this was the final piece in the jigsaw. He had now united his belief in the power of sex and magic into one occult vision. Crowley was practicing sexuality as a spiritual path. He reduced a great deal of symbolic teachings to their essence, which is essentially the duality or the polarity between male and female. And he uh, experimented greatly within within that sphere to understand what it, what mysteries were contained within the sexual act. shock of family and friends, Crowley and Rose ran off and got married. In 1904, Crowley was traveling with uh, his wife Rose. He had just married and they were on a honeymoon. So Crowley's idea of a honeymoon was basically uh, going uh, around the world, a very long trip. They were staying in Cairo, where they lived a lavish and decadent lifestyle. The honeymoon was a period of uninterrupted debauchery. Once in the first three weeks or so, Rose took some trifling liberty. I recognized the symptoms and turned her up and spanked her. She henceforth added the qualities of a perfect wife to those of a perfect mistress. They drank and they sniffed um, ether and uh, they probably smoked hashish and, and, uh, and other things that Crowley liked. Alistair had grown tired of his persona and decided a new one would be more fitting with his newfound life. In Alistair's normal fashion, he declared himself Prince Hiawa Khan and took to wearing a turban studded with diamonds, a silk robe, a 
in a gold cloth coat. I was, of course, Princess Hyowakan. We would be driven around the streets of Cairo in our carriage, with two young men running in front, clearing our path. What a great magician I was. We went accordingly after dinner with candles. I had with me a small notebook in which was written the preliminary invocation of the Goetia. Thee I invoke the bornless one. Thee that didst create the earth and the heavens. Thee that didst create the night and the day. Thee that didst create the darkness and the light. Thou art a son, never, whom no man hath seen at any time. Thou art Yavis. Thou art Yahapofras. Thou hast distinguished between the just and the unjust. Back in Cairo, they were continuing their orgy of hedonistic excess when the black magic ritual in the Great Pyramid had an unexpected result that was to be the turning point in Crowley's life. Rose Kelly began mumbling and muttering about the gods wanting to talk to Crowley. And particularly the god Horus had something to say to him. At first, you know, Crowley didn't know what to make of this, so he kind of ignored it. But eventually, you know, she, she kept doing this and, and it continued, so he challenged her and he asked her some questions. And much to his surprise, this unschooled woman, she had never studied Egyptian mythology or religion or magic, in this trance state, was able to answer all of his questions correctly. So impressed with this, Crowley thought, okay, this seems to be some evidence that there is some divine hand at work here. And uh, after that, getting in touch with somebody that said they were the god Horus. I think at that point, something happened within his life. He opened himself up to a power that never ever left him, which he developed. And I believe he was the real thing. I believe that people that came into contact with him came into contact with that which was supernaturally evil. He had given himself under that demonic control, and that demonic control could now affect him and could work through him. I shall find you, I shall have you, I am coming back to you. Crowley heard an unearthly voice from over his left shoulder. For one hour, at precisely the same time over the next three days, Crowley said that the voice dictated to him the Book of the Law the work that would become the Bible of his new religion. In 1904, Crowley had a communication with an extraterrestrial being named Iwas. And this being, through his wife, kind of a channeling type operation, brought forth a book that was called the Book of the Law in 1904. And this book declared that the slain and risen God, i.e. Jesus, had stepped off the throne and that a new god, the crown and conquering child, was taking his place. The Book of the Law is the Bible of the religion Crowley was endeavoring to found. A book of inspired writings, whereby Crowley portrays himself as a medium for some higher force. Inevitably, with an egomaniac like Crowley, he finds himself cast in the central role. The book of the law states, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In other words, people have the right to determine exactly how to live their lives, regardless of moral and religious boundaries. 
The focus is to help practitioners engage in spiritual quests that enable them to break through those restrictions so that he or she can be of one mind with his higher self. Crowley taught that the way to communicate with one's personal demon was to reach higher states of mind, trances that could not be easily achieved. And the best way to reach those special trance states to be able to converse with one's demon was through forms of ritual sex magic. I found, I found my experiences on, on pure DMT, both of them, utterly terrifying. And if I try to pin down what the terror came from, I'm not absolutely sure what it was. It was the, the strangeness and the purposive nature of the realm that I had, been, I had been put into a space where something was going to be done to me. Uh, and I think I found, I, and I wanted out, and at the same time, I couldn't get out. And that, it, it was the, almost a feeling of terror and claustrophobia co combined with that. I was, almost, I was thrashing around. I, I wanted out of there, but I couldn't go. Um, that experience sort of, it was different from any other DMT experience that I had. Like, when I smoked it, I felt like I got abducted right at that moment. Like, aliens sort of, you know, waited for me to smoke my bowl, and then they abducted me. The entities you see on DMT, are they real or not? Tall order, very difficult to really unpack that. For one thing, what do you mean by real? Right. <laughs> Let's start there. Sure. Again, I don't know. Let's say it's not real. In a Carl Jung way, it's, it's a shared human archetype. What is that programming that you take DMT that you release a little bit of during deep sleep, during vivid dreams, and a ton of when you die? When he first left the body and had a near-death experience himself, he went into a realm that was classically the, the realm of the demons and the, uh, what I would call the, 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 the reptilian entities and all this stuff. In fact, he talks about seeing reptilian beings brushing against him and all that stuff. I go through the tunnel, going through a tunnel, going through a tunnel, and I see a hand and it like stops me. And I see the fingers mutating, it, it turns into like three fingers, and then it starts backing out. And then it's the Bahamut, like Satan figure with the goat. Uh, now, of course, many scientists would say this is just uh, brain candy. This is just uh, just an illusion of your own brain, disturbed brain chemistry. Um, I don't agree with those with those scientists. I can't. Like it's occurred to me over the years that what we call imagination might simply be hyperdimensional perception. And you're actually seeing uh, worlds and places that truly exist. You know, in the Amazon, they believe that, that there is an intelligent spirit that lies behind ayahuasca. They don't think they're dealing with just plants. And who are we to say they're wrong? The, the shamans believe that, that an intelligent entity, a, a spirit being, lies behind the ayahuasca beverage. And he's like, well, Alex... I just don't believe in demons, but I did see basically aliens come up to the edge of the forest and we were all seeing it and we were all seeing the same thing, but I think it was a chemical reaction. You don't have a, if you, everybody gets drunk, we all think about what happened to us in high school or college or what's good or what's bad. We all have different experiences. When you're taking a hallucinogen and suddenly you're all seeing the same thing, it just means that the filter is off.
Alistair had become very distant. Sadly, as the days passed, he became more and more hostile towards me. Not as violent as he'd been with me in the past. I could tolerate that. But there was no longer any love for his wife. And his child. The only thing that mattered to him was Iwas, his guardian angel. By the end of our journey, I knew I'd eventually leave him. bringing his mistresses home. He would sexually and sadistically abuse them, whilst I would be forced to watch on occasion. They would be in our bed, whilst I would be hung by my ankles in the closet. Ironically, I gave birth once again during that period to a beautiful daughter. We named her Lola Zaza. was a gentleman came knocking at his door after he published a book and in this book he it was a book of poetry and in the book he had made an allusion to something and this guy named his name was Theodore Royce he was a German occultist and the head of the OTO the Ordo Templi Orientis which stands for the Order of Eastern Templars there's the Knights Templar again and this Theodore Royce told Crowley that he had given away the greatest secret in occult history. So the guy promptly initiated him on the spot to the ninth degree of the OTO and then explained the secret to him. The secret is that as a Mason, you are promised immortality. If you go to a Masonic funeral, you will hear them discuss the immortality issue. You will hear them promise that they will go to the Celestial Lodge above and live there forever. Where do they get their promise of immortality. Simply, the secret that Crowley uncovered, probably through demonic intervention, is the secret that this immortality is conveyed through tantric sex magic. Whereas for uh, ceremonial magic you need what is called a temple, so a space, a place where you, you do that, in sexual magic the temple is your own body. And you use your own body uh, in a way that it can gives you access to these dimensions, to these other dimensions of reality, which uh, are basically the goal of uh, the practice of magic. Crowley found so much value and, and appeal to this that his practice kind of shifted very much to focus on that for the rest of his life. In 1912, Royce initiated Crowley into three further degrees of OTO proper, that is the eighth, ninth, and tenth degrees, making him Grand Master of a new English section. He now had an excuse for using sexual magic and the introduction of bodily fluids to enhance magical power. It instantly flashed upon me the entire symbolism not only of Freemasonry but of many other traditions blazed upon my spiritual vision. 
From that moment, the OTO assumed significant importance. I had found the vehicle for my new eel. of red wine, then oil of abramelin and olive oil, and afterward soften and smooth down with rich, fresh blood. The best blood is of the moon monthly, then the fresh blood of a child or droppings from the host of heaven, then of enemies, then of the priest or of the worshippers, last of some beast, no matter what. This burn of this make cakes and eat unto me. This hath also another use. Let it be laid before me, and kept thick with perfumes of your horizon. It shall become full of beetles, as it were, and creeping things sacred unto me. These shall breed lust and power of lust in you, at the eating thereof. Ra-Hor-Ku is with thee. Worship me with fire and blood. Worship me with swords and with spears. Let the woman be girt with a sword before me. Let blood flow to my name. Trample down the heathen. Be upon them. O warrior, I will give you of their flesh to eat. Sacrifice cattle, little and big, after a child. Ye shall see that hour, O blessed beast, and thou the scarlet concubine of his desire. Damn them who pity. Kill and torture, spare not, be upon them. That stelle they shall call the abomination of desolation. Now according to Crowley's diary, he would have mass, and he would make cakes filled with menstrual blood. But he said in his mass, the host was made of excrement. So magically speaking, blood and semen, blood and excrement, attract spirits. And semen, or sperm, keeps them alive. When you get deep enough into the occult, and you start joining secret societies, you basically eventually have to eat and you have to drink and bathe in blood and all types of just sick, degenerate behavior. What are we talking about here? There's a, a considerable overlap uh, in the United States from the various groups, organizations, individuals, whatever you want to call it, but uh, the Satanists today and for the number of years in the past have basically used his philosophy and his writings as a guide. Francisco Fuster of Miami, Florida is convicted on 14 counts of child abuse. This case involved Francisco, his wife, and more than 50 children. The children related stories of being forced to eat feces, pose for pornographic pictures, take mind-altering drugs, 
kill animals, and submit to anal rape with a crucifix. The children also described the chanting of prayers to Satan. In 1988, 23-year-old Kelly Michaels was convicted of 115 counts of sexual abuse against 20 children in her care at the We Care Nursery School in Maplewood, New Jersey. The accusations included Kelly forcing the children to have sex with her and lick peanut butter off of her genitals, penetrating the rectums and vaginas with knives and forks, and forcing them to eat feces and urine. The tales of satanic ritual abuse usually start with touching or fondling, then progress to oral, genital, and anal penetrations, forced injections of mind-altering drugs, monsters or witches enacting bizarre rituals that include defecating and urinating on their victims' heads, and forcing them to eat feces and drink blood and urine. And finally, torture, mutilation, and murder. The rituals were almost always filmed. The victims were forced to participate in the murders and often made to eat the flesh and drink the blood of those who had been sacrificed. These were not merely the sadistic acts of pedophiles, but the sophisticated techniques by which devil-worshipping perpetrators programmed and controlled victims. And now listen to this sentence, folks, closely. For the highest spiritual working, one must accordingly choose that victim which contains the greatest and purest force. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. We're talking about human sacrifices. I dedicate myself wholly to the great work. I will work for wickedness. I will kill my heart. I will be shameless before all men. I will freely prostitute my body to all creatures. Our daughter Poopy was born in Paris in February 1920. We moved to the Abbey shortly after. We signed the lease for the Abbey in joint names. He was Sir Alistair de Curval, and I, the Countess Leah Harcourt. Each morning we would put on our magical robes and take our magical weapons outside. He with his sword or dagger and the women with their chalice, we would all face east and recite a short prayer, the Kabbalistic Cross. Then at noon, in the evening, and at midnight, we would go outside and make our prayers to the sun. Most evenings we would perform acts of sex magic, usually between the three of us, sometimes with other assistants which Alistair had found on the streets of Cephalu or were visiting the Abbey. He was also taking heroin by then.
it is so difficult for him uh, to get his message through that uh, you can see that there are moments when he the disappointment is so great that it almost leads to a complete disillusionment as to his role. So in 1932 he went back to England and uh, he never uh, left England uh, after that date. The center of his life remained the communication of the message of Thelema. Crowley's attempt to start a new religion in the Abbey of Thelema had gone disastrously wrong. His reputation as the wickedest man in the world was sealed. The last years of the great beast's life were spent living from hand to mouth. His fortune was long gone and his disciples had deserted him. He moved from one set of temporary lodgings to another and finally ended up in a boarding house in Hastings. His life of excess had left him with nothing but chronic heroin addiction and infamy. Crowley suffered from chronic bronchitis much of his life. This eventually resulted in numerous bouts of asthma for which he was prescribed heroin. This drug proved too strong even for Crowley's will. He remained addicted to heroin the rest of his life. But still, he has uh, a lot of energy to the very end, at least uh, intellectual energy. He is uh, working and writing until the very end. In 1934, Crowley began a libel case against a writer who described him as a black magician. He was desperate for money and believed he might be awarded damages. Examples of Crowley's pornographic poetry were read out in court, and then the wife of Rao Loveday, the young man who died in the Abbey of Thulema, gave evidence of Crowley's depravity. The judge was appalled, saying that in 40 years of justice, he had never heard of such wickedness. Crowley lost the case and ended up bankrupt. This man who had in his youth enjoyed a great deal of privilege and later years wound up you know without that his books weren't selling he was very much um, ostracized in the press whenever they needed to sell some papers you know Elster Crowley was the you know the whipping boy they brought out to write about you know he wound up living kind of far out of the city of London away from a lot of his friends and um, you know wound up dying in Hastings in uh, December 1st, 1947. I have exposed myself to every form of disease, accident and violence. I have driven myself to delight in dirty and disgusting debauches and to devour human excrements and human flesh. I have mastered every mode of my mind and made myself a morality more severe than any other in the world. A thousand years from now, the world will be sitting in the sunset of Crowleyanity. Crowley said, Everywhere his government is taking root, referring to Horace. Observe for yourself the decay, the sense of sin, the growth of innocence and irresponsibility, the strange modification of the rep reproductive instinct with the tendency to become bisexual or epicene. The childlike confidence in progress, combined with the nightmare fear of catastrophe, against which we are yet half unwilling to take precautions. Consider the popularity of the cinema, the wireless, the football pools, or guessing competitions, all devices for soothing fractious infants. No seeds of purpose in them. Consider sport, babyish enthusiasms, and rages which it incites. Whole nations disturbed by the disputes of boys. Consider war, the atrocities which occur daily and leave us unmoved and hardly worried. We are children. Since his death in 1947, Crowley has become an icon of rebellion. The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, have all been influenced by his message of freedom. Uh, all, all these different artists you would not believe, one after another that was influenced by Crowley. I mean, I don't can't think of any other occultist who's been more influential on rock musicians than Aleister Crowley, no one close. Crowley apparently influenced people from Adolf Hitler to Timothy Leary, to Robert Anton Wilson, to Harry Hay, to L. Ron Hubbard. I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over
over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. We're turned on, and we're tuned in, and we're very dropped out. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Millions of dollars would be spent on LSD research at universities throughout the country. And word would begin to spread on campus about this so-called mind-blowing drug. And suddenly, it was the counterculture of the 60s. I give the CIA a total credit for sponsoring and initiating the entire consciousness movement, counterculture events of the 1960s. Crowley taught that his satanic doctrine should be cloaked under the lie of love, and he believed the youth would fall for it. The Beatles wrote the song Come Together as a campaign song for Leary's hopeful presidential bid that, thank God, never got off the ground. The CIA funded and supported and uh, encouraged hundreds of young psychiatrists to experiment with this drug. And one of the men, men that he had influenced was Alfred Kinsey. After publishing his male and female reports, Kinsey began to travel abroad and study sexuality in foreign countries. Do you regard black magic as being purely fictitious, or is there some truth in it? Some truth. 100% truth. There is nothing fictitious about black magic. In any way, whatever. It is a fact. It is a fact uh, which has existed for several thousand years. Today, Crowley's followers believe that he was a true prophet because he foresaw a society that has now embraced ideas of sexual and spiritual freedom. Others are not so sure. I think today modern occultism sees a very watered-down version of Crowley. They gloss over uh, some of the atrocious things that he did. Um, and they just want to see him as a, a benign a humanist, somebody who said, let's be free, let's go with the flow. Um, and it is to deny uh, an awful lot of evilness that happened in his practices.